Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of the Bleed Lost Podcast. This week in the Carnasada, we are joined by Los Angeles Dodgers relief pitcher Justin Brule. Justin is a prospect that uh, made his major league debut this past season in 21. So we talk about that, talk about this weird lockout thing. He's uh, he's an outspoken guy and been uh, very candid with us about that. We also talk about his you know his journey from being an undrafted free agent up to the show, and uh, even talk about some JUCO ball, minor league camp, a, a whole range of stuff. And uh, you know, great conversation. And uh, obviously, we get into the nitty gritty of preparation for this upcoming season, whenever that may be. Some stuff that he's working on. Great conversation. He, he sounds like he's a great kid, got his head on right, and that's what the Dodgers like to have as well. So, without further ado, here is Justin Brill in the Carnassada. This is Todd Lights, public address announcer for your Los Angeles Dodgers. And now, it's time for the Bleed Lows Podcast with your hosts Alonso and Juan with the babyface gimmick in the sky, Roger. And on this week's uh, episode of uh, the Bleed Lows Podcast in the Carnasada, we welcome uh, Los Angeles Dodgers pitcher Justin Brule. Justin, how you doing, man? Good, man. How are you guys? Not too bad. We're uh, obviously a little anxious because there isn't any baseball yet. I sure. I, I mean, obviously, I don't need to tell you that because I know you're anxious to get the thing going. But how uh, up to this point, aside from the uh, white elephant in the room, how have things been this offseason for you? Uh, pretty good so far. Um, just kind of working on my body, getting stronger, getting in better shape just to get myself ready for another long season. Nice. Well, let's just get into it then. The lockout. Big elephant in the room. It sucks. There's no other way to put it. You've been very vocal about it, and, and I we appreciate uh, the candor as well because it gives the fans an insight as to what is, in fact, you know, potentially going on because there's just a lot of reporting, for lack of a better term. What what can you tell us about where we're at and, and where do you kind of see the next little bit going? Uh, from what I'm hearing, kind of at a standstill right now. Um, I know there's still quite a ways away on money between the CBT, collective bargaining, um, so I think they're like 18 million away on that. And then there's also the um, pre-arbitration bonus pool, which they're what 50 million off on. Like I that, think yeah. the MLB's at 30 and uh, the players are at like 80 mil or something like that. Um, you know, it's frustrating. I think uh, the players want to play, obviously. I don't think the owners want to play, which is kind of a slap in the face of the game of baseball. So. So is it fair to say, because the, the, the general vibe that we've gathered, and obviously you have to piece it together and you kind of have to figure out, you know, from the sourcing where it's coming from, you know, kind of in what direction it's going in. From the, the vibe and the general sense that we have as fans is that the owners don't want to play fairly. Is, is that fair to kind of make that assessment, for lack of a better term? Yeah, I'd say that's pretty accurate. I think all the proposals they've all the proposals that proposals they've made have been not in good faith. Um, I mean, what the players are asking for is more than fair. Uh, the owners don't want to come anywhere near that. So, and uh, and from the the players' perspective, you know, I I, I, it, I think the, the the concessions that were made today aren't necessarily terrible. Like as far as like you know making you know banning the shift, I don't think that's a bad thing. 
uh, if anything, that that might help offense a little bit. Um, you know, but but there, you know, the robo umpire thing, I, I'm still kind of uh, you and I are pitchers, obviously, yeah. you're just a, a show pitcher. So, I mean, that, uh-huh. I I don't know how I feel about that. Uh, you know, what what's what kind of made it so that that was a concession that the players were willing to make? Um, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not a, I, I love the shift, I think. And my role as a left-handed pitcher, I face a lot of left-handed batters, right? I think right. the shift helps me out more than just about anybody else. So I'm not a huge fan of that, but um, I understand how it's going to help the game, right? It's going to bring a little bit more excitement to the game, more uh, better pace, more balls in play, stuff like that. Uh, maybe some more hits and stuff too. Um, so it doesn't help me, but I understand why it helps the game. Um, and as far as the robo-umps, I hope that never gets put into baseball. I think they're trying to do way too much to change the game. Um, I think there's a line and that's kind of crossing it right there. What about the, uh, the pitch clock? I personally am not a fan of it because I feel like that kind of takes some leverage away from, from a pitcher. Yeah. You know, it's tough. Uh, cause a, a lot of pitchers kind of work at their own pace. You know, I, I kind of work a little bit faster, but I mean, there's plenty of guys out there that like to slow themselves down, control the game at their own pace. Um, so yeah, it does kind of take away from that aspect of the game, which is going to definitely hurt some pitchers. Justin, uh, I mean, 94, 95 was pr- way before your time. Uh-huh. So that's the last time we had a, a nasty one. Uh, we, we lost the World Series there. We lost the end of a season. And fans were really pissed uh, uh, about that one. To me, the biggest difference between 94 and 95 and now is social media. Now we get to hear the players. And one of the things that drives me nuts around fans, any fan that takes the owner's side, and and look, this is not a surprise. If you are a loyal listener to the show, you guys all know we are pro-labor on this show. We are pro-players. But for anyone to take the owner's side on this, I just don't understand. These are the same owners that charge you 22 bucks for a michelada, and you're going to take their side uh, on this? But one of the, the narratives that I can't stand is the millionaires versus billionaires. You're not a millionaire, Justin, unless you made money somewhere else and, uh, you know, you have it oh. underneath your mattress. So this is important to get this lockout right is important. So to have your teammates, uh, Joe Kelly, Justin Turner, Walker Bueller, actually be able to have a voice writing articles in the L.A. Times using Twitter to let us know, hey, this is what's happening. Is, is, has the union told you guys to stay off of that? Is there a resistance to be honest? I mean, because you guys are being transparent. Yeah, you know, I think that's re- uh, definitely changed in the recent years, right? Guys are being a lot more vocal about their viewpoints and where they stand, and especially on something that affects our whole life. Um, I think it's huge. Um, guys are definitely being a lot more vocal. Um, I think it's good. Uh, nobody's told us really otherwise to kind of hold back on that stuff. Um, I think we're also kind of counteracting a lot of the misinformation that MLB is putting out there. Um, I mean, like they just said, like on Tuesday, the last few years have been financially hard for the owners, right? But they've grossed like $10 billion or something like that. So I don't see how that's really harmful. But yeah, they're throwing out a lot of misinformation and the players are kind of counteracting that, which is good. I mean, look, I, I read Joe Kelly's piece in, in the L.A. Times, and, and I get this. And there's a lot of people out there that say, you know, it's it's for the love of the game and all that stuff. But we also can't lose sight of the fact that you guys don't play for free. 
All right. Nobody here in your regular job, you don't go to your job in, in an, hey, man, it's OK. I, I do it for the love of my job. I just I love, you know, pouring cement. It's it's always been a passion of mine. I'll do it for free. So this whole narrative of greed and all that stuff, I, I just how do you guys get that across the fans? And do you guys need to get that across to the stand? Do you guys feel that you need to win this publicity war in order to get what you guys want? In a way. Yeah. Um, like I said, with like the misinformation, the, the, like you said, the millionaires versus billionaires thing. Right. I think uh, was it something like 60% of the players in, in the league right now play on the minor or uh, major league minimum. Right. So whatever that was five seventy last year. Um, and then, the average major league career is only it's, I think it's dipped down to just under three years now. So, I mean, at that point after taxes, you're not even close to a millionaire yet. So I think, yes, we kind of do have to win that publicity, uh, the publicity publicity side of it, uh, just to get the fans back on our side. And hopefully in turn, um, cause I know in, in 94, right. When the last lockout was yep. game of baseball took a huge hit. Right. I think if we can kind of open the majority of the fans eyes, that'll kind of help us not lose so many fans in the future. So how does this work, Justin? Do you guys, does your player rep go to you guys and, and lay everything down for you guys, give you guys the information? Or do you guys as a group, do you guys talk to one another about, hey, well, I mean, how do you, th- I mean, what do you think of this and stuff? Is there much interaction between you guys? Yeah, uh, not so much uh, like before the last few days, um, what the end of last week, there wasn't too much, but uh, leading into those talks when all that movement started happening, um, we have a group chat, um, Scherzer, of course, who was in, uh, in Florida at the meetings. Um, it's kind of throwing a bunch of different ideas around, talking to a bunch of guys, getting a bunch of different guys' viewpoints. Um, we discuss stuff like uh, an international draft and stuff like that, what guys' opinions were on that. So, yeah, there definitely is a lot of that recently. With, with how – and, again, back to the misinformation thing, I, I think that's important to point out because – you know, you know, the, our perspective, our stance here has always been just, you know, we're obviously pro labor, but we want to hear both sides, right? One side for whatever reason wants to hundred percent control the narrative. And the other just wants to say, Hey, we just want this to be fair. And I think that's a hundred percent fair. Cause if you're going into any sort of labor negotiations, you have to establish the boundaries and you're just basically telling these guys, Hey, we just want to be compensated fairly, but we also want these other things in place as well. So they help grow the game. So with that, I feel like, and I might be wrong here. I mean, you're you're about ten years younger than me, um, which damn, I'm a boomer now. I'm just realizing, but um, uh, don't tell, don't point out to these other two guys because they're like ten years older than us. So, so different different perspectives, right? But I feel like Rob Manfred is is more or less kind of at this point dug into the point where it, you know, kind of weird symmetry with what's going on in the real world with with the perspective of nah. We're not, we're not going to give in here, and this is just where it's at. And I feel like that the reasons that they're kind of giving aren't fair. I, I was curious, do you have they told you guys, hey, this is why we're not going to budge on the CBT? You know, because because obviously, if it's money, we know the numbers. So so it just it wouldn't it, it wouldn't. I feel like it wouldn't suffice it to say that it's just you know hard numbers that have to be something else. Yeah, you know, uh, from what I'm hearing, we're not really sure why they won't budge. I think they're just being really cheap and don't want to spend the money. I mean, you saw uh, what the report came out that three out of the, the I think what the angels didn't want the CBT raised at two twenty, and like three other teams too. Yeah. And like, it's just, I don't understand why, especially with like, the, cause I mean, at that point 
with the rate of inflation over the last five years, it still doesn't add up. So, no. And even on top of that, you know, Rob Manfred is on record saying that more or less owning a baseball team is a terrible investment. So I don't understand that narrative, you know, that they're not making money when at the same time, you know, historically, there's, I mean, Derek Jeter literally just walked away from the Marlins CEO position because they made it clear that they weren't going to want to win anytime soon. So I, I, yeah. I just, I don't understand the, 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 the short sightedness, I guess, on the owner side to still continue to push this narrative that, Hey, this is too much. Yeah, I think uh, I think you're seeing baseball kind of turn into a business rather than a game, right? These owners don't care about winning. All they care about is maximizing profits. Um, you know, that, that's why they want the the 14 team playoff. With that, uh, those middle 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 of the pack teams don't have to spend as much money to get in. They're going to save money that way. They're going to go under 500 and still make the playoffs. So I think they're just trying to stuff their pockets with as much money as they can, and Manfred's just helping them do that. And as long as he's putting money in their pockets, he'll be commissioner. When, when you guys found out about the two baseball thing, how, how, you know, obviously at this point, you know, by, by the point, all that stuff started to come out, there was the stuff with the COVID season and how they went about even that was its own. I mean, that there's just so many things, the Astros thing, which I know you've, you've kind of been around a little bit at the handling of that, the two baseball thing, the COVID season thing for you, you know, obviously this is your first go around with this. You're a young guy you know, labor negotiations aren't something that ever comes across the mind of, uh, you know, someone in their mid twenties, but, but here we are for for you, uh, you know, obviously you formulated your opinion, but also, as you know, clubhouse guys do what they do and they kind of, you know, get the, the rah, rah going for lack of a better term, but for you, how how did you kind of come to the position that you're at? You know, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to come in hot on Twitter sometimes, put my, my perspective out there and let it be heard when very easily with the misinformation that's going on, people could be like, yo, you're just a kid. At what point, you know, did you feel kind of, I don't want to say enabled, but did, that you felt that you could comfortably do that with no, you know, with no repercussions for lack of a better term? Um, you know, it's just kind of seeing other guys kind of talk about the same stuff, um, you know, and it's like, I, I'm not really scared to speak my mind when it's something that I really believe in. Right. Um, like if I have a really hot take or something like that and I truly believe it, I'll probably put it out there. Right. But if it's kind of like a some, something I'm a little bit skeptical about, I probably won't. Or if I don't have like all the information on it or I don't fully understand it, then I'm probably not going to speak on it. Um, but when I feel like I can confidently speak the, what I want to say, then, yeah. And, 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 what, and, do, and what is your summation of Rob Manfred kind of, the, the, you know, obviously you've put out what out there on Twitter, but is it fair to say that you think he's just, he's just not fit for this position? I know you can't technically say that per se, mm-hmm. but you, I know you have strong opinions about him. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's tough. Um, obviously, I don't think he's really done much to help the game of baseball in the last few years. Uh, you know, the, the game of baseball hasn't grown. Uh, they don't promote players. Um, I feel like every policy he's put into effect has just been to help the owners grow the game or uh, grow their pockets and not do much to help the game grow. That's fair. And again, and, and I'm curious to hear this, this uh, kind of, because again, you're younger than all of us. How do you think that they can uh, you know, get the, the game to grow with like your generation even, because again, there, you know, nowadays people, you know, kids are fans of players and not teams mm-hmm. and, and things like that. So, so for you, what, what do you think they could do to, to maybe help the game grow aside from the socials and all that jazz? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think like they just don't promote their players well enough. Right. I mean, I saw, I saw a tw- uh, something on Twitter the other day, Tyler hero, who's, who's an average or slightly above average NBA player 
has more Instagram followers than Mike Trout, right? Like one of the greatest players ever play this game, probably the GOAT right now. And he has 400,000 less followers than some above average NBA player. So, I mean, I think that is just, I don't know. That's, I think the socials are a big part of it, right? Um, I also think youth baseball is kind of expensive and youth baseball as a whole is also dying, which doesn't help. And I think the MLB could probably put more money into youth baseball to help grow the game that way. Justin, uh, I mean, I, I think you said it. I think the way you promote players is let them just be who they are. Let them have their personalities. And I think it's very clear that you you have a personality. So I, I, I think you're the perfect person to ask this question. Uh, you might be able to settle an argument for us. You are the pride of Petaluma. Am I correct? I, I guess you could say that, yeah. So let me ask you this. I'm a Dodger fan. Am I allowed to like anything at uh, can I like teams in San Francisco in other sports? Yeah, I don't see why not, right? They, 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 so, don't, they don't have to go with each other, right? Well, like I, 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 like, I, I like the Rams, you know, I mean, I kind of like, I'm more of like a player guy, but, you know, I like the Rams and the uh, Niners. So, I mean, I don't know. So you never had an allegiance growing up there in, in Petaluma to the to the hated ones or uh, <laughs> um, it's, it's OK if you. Hey, dude, you didn't know you were going to yeah. get drafted by the Dodgers. It's all right. Yeah. I mean, for the most part, I was a Yankees fan growing up. Uh, but uh-huh. obviously being an hour away from AT&T at the time, I've been to hundreds of games. I went to a couple World Series games. Um, so, I mean, yeah, unfortunately, you know, looking back at it now, I did root for the Giants once upon a time. But I didn't have, like, a diehard allegiance to them or anything like that. So, so my so dad, my dad, on the other hand, had a big problem with it because he's been a Giants fan for 50 years, right? And growing up, he would always tell me, oh, I'm never going to put, put that Dodger blue color on. I'm never going to wear that color. The day I signed, he bought a Dodgers hat and a shirt. It was rocking Dodger blue. Oh, please tell me there's video of him wearing 63 <laughs> with, with Brule on and just walking around. Up oh, in yeah. oh yeah so what was it what was it about the yankees why why did you um so let's see i want to say i was in like third or fourth grade um just moved into a new neighborhood uh, met a kid who was my best friend for eight years probably um but i didn't know it at the time right we just hung out all the time he was a huge yankees fan for whatever reason i don't know why he was a yankees fan um but I think I want to say it was the last year of the old Yankee Stadium, 2008. Him and his family took me to New York. and We went to a Yankees game on Easter Sunday in 2008. And from that day forward, I kind of just fell in love with them. Okay. Well, I mean, at least there's a story over there. I'm, I'm yeah. telling you. Oh, no, it, was, it wasn't completely random or anything like that. But, yeah. <laughs> well, over here at the NFC Championship game with the Rams and the Niners, people were losing their mind because there were Dodger fans openly rooting for the 49ers and Uh being said you cannot you cannot do that and so we were just saying look it's not the same sport you know baseball and and football Uh yeah and and the rams just moved there what three or four years ago too i mean they were in st louis before that so i mean thank you i think that that kind of makes it a lot easier well, truthfully, so, a part of the reason, sorry, not to butt in one, yeah. that, that we're, we're trying to confirm that Roger here, who our producer, the baby face gimmick in the sky, who, who doesn't say much, is the hill he has chosen to die on is you cannot be a Dodger fan and be a fan of the San Francisco 49ers. And I, I for the life of me, can't seem to wrap my head around that. You know, obviously, listen, we can argue all day that Tom Brady is not the GOAT. I don't think Tom Brady's the GOAT. 
we can argue that all day, right? As far as go ahead, you know, Justin, go at him, go at him, Justin. Oh, I can't, I can't, I can't. That's in my Twitter bio. It is. <laughs> I saw that. Ago. That uh, I'm yeah. poking the bear, but but likewise with poking the bear, I don't understand in, in why. I, so I'm not a Niner fan, by the way. So Juan is a Raider fan. So nothing. Right. He Go can't Raiders. Yeah, he's bulletproof. <laughs> nothing can offend him. Yeah, uh, I am a Packer fan. Yeah, nothing can hurt Juan. I'm a Packer fan. And Roger all of a sudden became a football fan this offseason. <laughs> and he's now a Rams fan. So but he, he made the hill again. The hill that he has chosen to die on is you cannot be a fan of of anything up north. And I for the life of me don't understand why. Yeah, you know, it's tough. I mean, yeah, it doesn't make any sense, but I mean, if that's what you want to do. That's fine. Thank you, Justin. You've been an L.A. guy your whole life. Are you a Kings fan too, I'm guessing? L.A. Kings? You like hockey or no? What is hockey? Go ahead, uh, Roger. Go ahead. Drop all your <laughs> hockey knowledge right now. It's not like he's calling you out on it. Um, some, no, I don't really follow hockey, but I'm, I'm an okay. L.A. guy. I mean, my reasoning so, for- so Clippers or Lakers then? Lakers. He's a Clippers okay. fan. Don't let him lie to you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's, a he's been fan. writing as hard about how the Clippers run LA yeah. because yeah. I, do, Lakers, I, I, uh... I, I do that. I do that for Juan because Juan's the you know he's a Clipper fan on the on the on the down low. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so every time every time the Lakers Clippers, but I'm like, dude, Clippers again. Let's I, I text him Clippers run LA just to quote Juan. But My degree no. is in a, is in business administration, and uh, the psychology component here says, as an uncertified psychologist, that's projection, and that's all I heard there. <laughs> That, that man is a Clippers fan, and he's just afraid to admit it. Justin, so you were they were at, you were added onto the NLCS roster, and you and you pitched really well in that series. Um, but were were you not available due to some arm issues in a game or so, or or what was that about? Yeah, so I think that was uh, what was it? Game six. I went in the pen, um, kind of had a little bicep tendonitis flare up. Um, that's kind of what kept me off the roster during the DS. Um, it happened and, um, I think I had a little, I went out in the eighth inning, um, had a little flare up, kind of went back in, sat in the dugout, couldn't get my arm really going. Um, felt like I didn't have anything behind it. Bicep was just like the top of the bicep right below my shoulder was just really tight. Uh, felt like I couldn't throw with any force or effort or anything like that. So they kind of shut me down. Um, when saw the trainers kind of took care of it was kind of okay during the DS, kind of still rehabbing to get back for the uh, championship series. Um, finally got back to pretty good health, um, felt really good. Started, like you said, was throwing the ball really well, felt really confident. Um, but then, yeah, I think because uh, I threw game game one, game four, and then game five, felt great. Uh, was going to go back to back to back on game six. Um, like you said, I think I was warming up in the third inning or something like that. And the same thing that kind of flared up on me the week before it just kind of happened again. Um, it was, I think it was kind of, it was kind of weird because Joe Kelly kind of had a little bicep thing that game too, uh, where he blew his arm out basically. Um, and then like an inning later kind of happened to me too. So. So how, how do you deal with that as a major leaguer? I mean, I'm sure you guys, I, I mean, and you had Tommy John in high school, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, at that, if I had Tommy John in high school, I probably would feel that my arm is invincible. I, I'm going to be good for the for once I get up to the uh, to the pros. But to me, it's got to be so frustrating. How do you, as a professional athlete, deal with these injuries? And it's what's preventing you when uh, being on the field, and that's what you want to do. 
Yeah, you know, it's tough. Um, it kind of comes with the territory for the most part. Um, I mean, you can do as you can try to do as much as you can in the weight room, uh, conditioning, strength training and stuff like that to try to prevent that stuff. Uh, but so I feel like sometimes it's just kind of inevitable, you know. Uh, you, you in, a, in a also kind of random thing from last season, you made your major league debut last season. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you kind of, you know, you went from you started the season at double A. And uh, you went up to AAA in June, which is, you know, that's kind of quick. And uh, and then from there, you got called up to the show. Tell us what your experience was like getting called up, because everyone's experience is different and everyone's story is different. So I'm just kind of curious to hear yours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, originally I got called up on the taxi squad about five or six days before I actually made my debut. Um, so obviously I got the call from our AAA coach that last that, that night. At first, when he called me, I was like, oh, shit, I just got traded because um, there was a player to be named later with the uh, Danny Duffy trade, right? So I was like, ah, oh, shit, I probably just got traded. Damn. And he gets on the phone. And he's like, the first thing he says is, hey, don't worry. This is a good call. You're going to go. You're going to meet the team in Arizona tomorrow. I was like, oh, shit, okay. So obviously, you know, I kind of like I blacked out for the most part, started shaking, got really nervous. Um, you know, and then I got there. Let's see, I got there the next day. Uh was on a text squad for two days. They said, Hey, we're not going to activate you. So I kind of got blue balled a little bit. Uh, they sent me back to AAA, And then about five days later, uh, I got the call again, but it kind of didn't have the same effect. I was like, Oh shit, here we go again. I could get activated. I could not. Um, and then finally I got there and they said, they're going to activate me that day. So it was kind of cool once it all kind of came to fruition though. And that's the weird thing with the COVID stuff now is you may get the call and it's either like you said, you, Oh God damn it. I'm getting traded or, you're getting to the taxi squad where you may not even get activated, but you're still a part of the taxi squad. So it's, you know, kind mm-hmm. of a silver lining. Um, but that is kind of funny that you thought you got traded. <laughs> yeah. Um, when, uh, when you got up, I'm just kind of curious. Cause you, you, like I said, you went from double A to triple A and, and then up to the show, you know, no, no knock on the minors, but the Pacific coast league is kind of a difficult league to pitch in. It's a difficult, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of really good high up, you know, high to upper tier prospects, you know, some of the pitching conditions are even difficult, you know, triple A Salt Lake, triple A Vegas. Like those are some, some kind of difficult places to pitch in. How, how was your adjustment period from going from the, you know, small amount of time you spent in triple A to the show? Um, you know, I, it wasn't as difficult as I thought it was going to be. I think, uh, a lot of the coaches kind of made me feel really comfortable with what I did. I think the big thing that they would t- preach to me is don't change anything you've been doing all year, right? Just do exactly what you did that got you here and you'll be fine. Like your stuff plays, still cutters and sliders. That's all you got to do. You'll be fine. Your stuff plays. You're here for a reason and stuff like that. So it just really made me kind of not so tight and tense, right? I, f- I didn't feel like I had to do too much. Um, and I really didn't try to do too much, right? I was trying to throw the ball down the middle for the most part and just let myself do the work. Um, and I think it paid off. No, oh, yeah. No, hundred percent. What, what was it like for you, uh, uh, in that, uh, in that bullpen? Cause we know that there's a, there's some characters in that bullpen. So how was, oh, how, yeah. how was, how was that adjustment? For it, you? It, it, I mean, it was, I don't think it was like a hard adjustment or anything, but I just didn't expect it to be like that kind of fun. Right. Like I had so many good times with those guys. I mean, Joe Kelly, Corey Knievel, Blake Trinan, uh, David Price too. Like it was crazy. Um, just super good guys too. Like same same way as the pitching coaches, uh, pitching and the coaching staff and everything. They're making our job super easy. Like our us young guys, um, just kind of taking our wing or uh, putting us under their wings, kind of taking care of us. 
Well, and again, you're, you know, obviously you're, you're, you're a young man, but you're still at, at heart, you're still kind of a kid, right? And mm-hmm. you're going from the minors to walking into the show into that clubhouse. You know, it's one yeah. thing if you're walking in, you know, no offense to the Rockies, but like if you're walking into the Rockies clubhouse, you know, it's the Rockies. But I mean, you're walking into there's former MVPs, former Cy Youngs, you know, all, multiple all stars like it, it's, you know, the Showtime Lakers. We talk about them all the time. It's the Showtime Dodgers. Uh, did, did that ever kind of were you ever starstruck at any point or were you just kind of like, oh, OK, like, you know, I'm just here to do my job. Yeah, I think the first couple of days I was pretty starstruck, especially because I wasn't even in big league spring training to start the year, right? I was in minor league camp. Uh, so that was kind of my first experience, just meeting all those guys and seeing all those guys for the first time. Uh, but yeah, the first couple of days I'm just walking in and I'm like, damn, there's like a billion dollars in this locker room. This is crazy. <laughs> uh, and I honestly thought I was like, damn, like they're just going to big league me. Like I'm a nobody, like they don't know who I am, but it was the complete opposite. Like everybody was so chill, so welcoming. Everybody was just being so nice. It really made things so easy. Well, and, and I know Andrew Friedman, director of baseball ops or president of baseball ops, I guess is his title now for the Dodgers has talked about the, the character is, is huge for, for, for the organization, not just the players, but the organization. And obviously there's character guys in that clubhouse, you know, the Justin Turner's of the world, the Clayton Kershaw's of the world, you know, obviously they had the addition of Max Scherzer, who, you know, another thoroughbred slash character guy. Um, you know, what, what can you tell us, you know, kind of giving us a little bit of insight as to what that kind of dynamic is, because a lot of fans don't, I don't think a lot of fans understand the, the clubhouse dynamic because the people don't really understand either how much time players are at the, at the stadium every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we're there. I mean, most of the guys kind of get there 12 to one for a seven o'clock start. And then you're there until 11 or 12 at night till after the game. Uh, but yeah, the, our clubhouse specifically super relaxed, super loose. Everybody gets along. Um, everybody's super nice to each other. And I think that's what differs a lot from other teams, right? You, we, we would hear guys uh, that came over from other teams would be like, oh, this clubhouse is amazing. Like we'll have a guy from whatever team and nobody even talks in the clubhouse, right? Everybody just keeps themselves. And I think that kind of breeds winning, right? Like that clubhouse dynamic, it really helps us stay loose and play together. And I think it really helps win games for the most part. And again, you know, to the point of how much time you spend with each other, it makes it so you don't want to strangle each other either. Because if you're around each other <laughs> yeah. that much, you know, at some point yeah. you don't want to throw hands. Yeah. So if you were losing, it'd, it'd probably be a different story. But yeah, definitely the winning helps a lot. Hey, Justin, you have done something that only we have dreamed of. And, and that is pitching in a Major League Baseball game, making your debut in August at Dodger Stadium in a day game. And it was hot, if I recall, on that day. Take me about take me through the actual game itself. I, I know you have to be nervous, right? It's your first appearance in the show. You strike out Brandon Marsh. Now, I've seen other people make major league debuts, and it does not go well, right? They just mm-hmm. get lit up. After that first strikeout, how, how do you calm yourself down, dude? How does your heart not explode? I mean, I'm waiting for, like, Temple of Doom stuff to happen when you're out there. You know, for me, I think it's kind of been something I've worked on since I was really young, right? I used to show a lot of emotion. I used to throw tantrums and stuff when I was like 10 or 12 years old, right? It got so bad to the point where I had to sign a contract with my coach saying I wouldn't do any of that stuff anymore, right? And kind of from that day on. What would happen if you did? Ah. I don't remember. What I probably was this contract saying? I, I probably, it, I don't know. It's something I signed when I was like 12 years old. Probably <laughs> get suspended or something for a short time. But, uh, like it wasn't anything bad. Like I wasn't a bad teammate or anything, but I just kind of 
through a pity party every time I shook out or stuff like that. Um, but ever since then, I've kind of worked on my mentality, right? My mentality when I'm on the mound is kind of like a calm intent, right? I don't show a bunch of emotion. I'm not out there yelling and screaming because that really doesn't work for me, right? I kind of like to stay calm, cool, collected and stuff like that, but still have that same like chip on my shoulder, right? So everything I do is kind of internal, right? I talk to myself internally and stuff like that. I don't express a lot of emotion. I'm kind of the way in real life too. I don't show a lot of emotion um, day-to-day life. Um, but yeah, I think just breathing through it. I think I was pretty nervous at first at bat and then I struck him out on three pitches and I was like, oh, okay. Like this is the same is thing easy. I've been doing my whole life. Like why am I sweating this? Like it's the same game. I've been playing this for 24 years or whatever. Um, you know, and then I turn around, get the ball back, and I see Shohei Otani and uh, walking up to the plate, and I was like, "Oh, okay, what the hell is he doing in there?" Because <laughs> he, he he didn't start that day, so he's pinch hitting left on left, and I'm like, "What the hell is going on?" And then, uh, yeah, after that, Prior came out right before that and said, "Hey, don't throw this guy strikes." So I'm like, "Okay, I got you." <laughs> oh, so so let me. All right, so. When you hear, like, when you're in the middle of the game and a guy like Otani comes up to the plate, how do you not get into your head? And this is just the stars, like, holy shit, this is the guy that I see on the, you know, in video games. Mm-hmm. This is the highlights. I see all of this. How do you, like, put that aside and go, I got to get this guy out? You know, I think uh, at that point, I think the, the competitiveness of me just kind of takes over, right? I, I don't really care who's in the box. I'm going to attack every guy the same way. Um, you know, I think when I first saw it, I, I was like, holy shit, like that show Yotani, right? But then I put my foot on the rubber and kind of locked it in, and just went throwing baseballs. So when you got into that dugout after that inning, who was the first person that reached out to you and said, welcome to the show, kid? Uh, I think it was Dave. I think he was on the front step right there, Roberts. I think it was him. How much interaction do you have with Roberts or are you more with Mark Pryor? Um, so we're relievers specifically are probably more with Bardo, our uh, bullpen coach, and then uh-huh. Connor McGinnis, our assistant pitching coach. Um, Pryor, for the most part, works with the starters. Um, Dave so much. He'll, he'll talk to us every once in a while, but nothing like super hands-on or anything like that. So it's really clickish then. So, so you don't interact at all with the infield, the outfield, the, the everyday players? Uh, no, I mean, in the locker room and stuff like that, definitely talk to each other, chat each other up and stuff like that. Uh, but I mean, yeah, like once the game starts, bullpen, we're on the bullpen, hitters are doing their thing. It's kind of just keep to yourselves for the most part. So when Joe Kelly became Mariachi Joe, how did the rest of you guys, did you guys get jealous and be like, Hey, I want, I want my own thing going on here because I love it because it's what you had mentioned before the personality comes out and we get to promote that. And all of a sudden Mariachi Joe has become a legend in Dodger lore. Uh huh. Yeah. You know, I think it's cool. Like everybody's got their own personality. I mean, that suits Joe really well. Um, I think other guys will slowly find their identity like that. Um, but yeah, Mariachi Joe is pretty cool. What did you guys think about the mariachi out in the in the pavilions during the playoffs? It was pretty cool. I liked it. It was something new. I've never seen that before at a baseball game. So, so you, would you be okay with that becoming a regular thing at Dodger Stadium? Yeah, why not? Now, Blake Trinan was a, was a big help to you, right? Have you gotten mm-hmm. uh, to know the rest of those guys in the bullpen? Like, how do you communicate with Bruce Dar? Because like Bruce Dar doesn't speak English, right? Oh uh, no, he does. He does pretty good. Yeah. 
So have um, they, is there any uh, other guys in the bullpen that you've gotten to know better now that you've, you've gotten into the playoffs with these guys or. Yeah, I think for the most part, like just about everybody, uh, David Price, love him. He's an awesome guy. I play video games with him every once in a while. Um, obviously Alex Basia, I'm living, living at his house right now. That's where I am right now. So, um, <laughs> and then, yeah, the, uh, Corey Knievel too, uh, probably one of the greatest guys I've ever met. He hooked me up with take us to the Rams game, the first game at SoFi. Right. So how was that? I mean, how was that experience? It, it was awesome. The place is a maze, but yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> so um, you brought yeah, up, yeah, I'm sorry. You ahead, brought sorry. up Corey Knievel. So he wanted me to, the whole opener for a reliever does is that something that it, it doesn't phase you if i mean you did it twice right last mm-hmm. season you in, you in opened the series, games. yeah does that change your approach at all or how how do you feel about the opener uh i kind of so i did it i did it once in triple a and i hated it right because they told me like four hours before the game started they're like hey you're starting so my anxiety was terrible right i had to think about it like oh shit i'm starting i have to get ready but I think when it comes down to it, for the most part, when guys find out they're opening the game, they'll treat it just like they would if they were going in like the sixth or seventh inning of the game, right? So they'll go out like 15 minutes before the start of the game, stretch, and then go straight to a bullpen, right? So they kind of keep it short. They don't go really long. They just try to keep it as similar as they can to going into like a seventh or eighth inning and stuff like that. We had uh, Diego Cartaya on last week, and we, obviously we got the perspective of his coming internationally to minor league camp. One of the things that I absolutely miss about working in baseball and love about baseball is minor league spring training camp. Cause it's, it's pretty, it's pretty loose. You know, it's kind of wild too, because you got a bunch of guys in a locker room that just goes for miles with a bunch of clubbies and a bunch mm-hmm. of masks. Like it's not anything like kind of the, the, the major league spring training that everyone sees on TV. You mm-hmm. also got to do something else. That uh, that you know, that's a little unique too. That Diego didn't do either. You played JUCO ball, and in my mm-hmm. humble opinion, JUCO ball is the best baseball that you can play out there. And no offense to, I work for in, in the Pac-12. No offense to Pac-12, anything you know, mm-hmm. the the Big Five, uh, Power Five stuff. To me, you know, the 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 Iowa Westerns of the world, the Wabashes of the world, like those those programs are like where you're gonna find some roughnecks. Before we talk about mm-hmm. minor league camp. What can you tell us about your experience from JUCO and kind of how it's helped you up to this point? So uh, JUCO, probably one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. Um, I didn't start at JUCO. I started at uh, Cal Poly, Cal Poly. Uh, San Luis Obispo, right? And then transferred back, right? But I kind of wish I went to, or uh, I went JUCO straight out of college, right? I mean, it was probably one of the greatest experiences I've ever had. Uh, grind, it's, JUCO ball is completely different than D1. It's an absolute grind. I mean, for us, we're taking these like white vans to games. We're not traveling on like nice buses or plane flights. Uh, guys are on their own for like meals and stuff like that. I mean, fortunately for me, I got to live at home because I was only 25 minutes away, which made things a little bit easier, but like living conditions are terrible for a lot of guys. I mean, it's an absolute grind, but I think it, it really turns you from a boy into a man. And I think that was huge for me mentally, um, just kind of being around the same kind of guys. Um, and our coach is an absolute hard ass, but he is probably one of the greatest coaches I've ever had. And he gets the absolute most out of like the least talented players. It's amazing. And, and you go from that to, you weren't drafted. You, you're signed with the Dodgers as an undrafted free agent. D- did, 
was was your morale low that you weren't picked at any point, even if you would have been, you know, the the three hundred and fifty fourth pick in the fourteenth round or whatever, or or was it one of those that you were just kind of like, yo, I'm just going to do this? Um, so for me, I think mine was kind of a little different. Um, it was kind of more circumstantial, right? I, I think uh, there was probably a good chance I was going to get drafted um, on the third day. Um, I got convinced by I was transferring to uh, UC Berkeley after uh, being at Santa Rosa Junior College. Um, our pitching coach called me from Berkeley and said, Hey, don't sign, come to school, whatever. We'll get you more money. We'll, you'll make more money next year in the draft. I said, screw it, whatever. I Cause I was going to lower my number, what I was asking for. I can't remember what it was, but I was going to lower my number to try to sign. Cause I wanted to go play pro ball. Um, and he kind of said, Hey, no, come play for me. And I was like, all right, cool. I'll do it. Uh, so I called my agent kind of told him that I wanted to go to school. Um, and then three days later after the draft, uh, the head coach or pitching coach at Cal, take the uh, job at Stanford. So they switched schools three days after the draft, which kind of left me out to dry a little bit, but it wasn't a big deal. Um, so at that point, I kind of, uh, a couple people in my uh, inner circle kind of called me like, hey, like you can still sign as a free agent. And I was like, oh shit, like maybe I could do that. And Cause at that point I, I tried to play for, I really wanted to play for this coach, uh, pitching coach, um, Thomas Eager, uh, great guy, great pitching coach. Um, but unfortunately it just didn't work out. And at that point I was like, Maybe I should just sign. Like, this is my dream. This is what I've been waiting for my whole life. Like, this opportunity is in front of me. Um, so, yeah, I kind of – I had a few offers from four or five different teams and just decided to go with the Dodgers. And, and aside from money, was there any particular reason you picked the Dodgers over the other offers? So, this is something I really haven't told anybody, but uh, my grandpa was a diehard Dodgers fan, right, growing up. Um, only Dodgers fan in my, in my entire family, which is super weird. Uh, but he was a diehard Dodgers fan. Um, he was a big supporter of mine, too. He passed away when I was, I want to say, 12 or something like that, maybe 12 or 13. I was in junior high. Um, but, you know, I would always play catch with him in the backyard. He would come to all my games. He was a huge supporter of mine. Um, he would do the uh, – they have those uh, adult camps at spring training. Yeah. Um, he would go to those all the time, right? So he was a huge Dodgers fan. Um, so – for me, it was kind of a combination of that and just the Dodgers kind of seemed like they were the team with the most interest in me. So it kind of just felt right. You know, it just felt like it was a sign. So I was like, you know what? This feels right. Then you go to minor league camp. And and one thing that's kind of been, been told in lore is that when you go to the minor league camp, regardless of your ranking as a prospect, regardless of if you were drafted or not, everyone gets the same attention from everyone because they just want to get the most out of everyone. How, how, how true is that for, for those that don't know? So I think your higher prospects obviously are going to get more opportunities, right? <laughs> I think your, your late round draft guys, your guys that didn't sign for a lot of money, they're going to get like one to two years to kind of show what they got. And if they don't show anything, they're going to get kicked to the curb, right? But those high round prospects, they're going to get three, four, five years of minor league development to try to turn them into something because they have such a big investment in those guys. Right. Well, and now, I mean, obviously you made it through the thing, you know, I mean, Juco is more or less like going from rookie ball to double A, you know, you're not in the nicest, you know, you're not traveling the Mm -hmm. nicest, you're not living the nicest. You get the triple A where at least in in the PCL you're flying because of how far everything is. And then now Mm -hmm. you're in the show. So, I mean, that, if anything, what I'm taking away from that is your work ethic. And obviously you've rose up the ranks. So, I mean, hey, the Dodgers are lucky to have you, man. So I'm, we're stoked to have you here. Thank you. I appreciate it, guys. 
Hey, Justin, I, I, I like you even better now to know that your, your grandfather was a huge Dodger fan. Mm-hmm. Was there any player that he talked about or would ever tell you, hey, man, this guy, when I saw this guy play, he was the best? Uh, uh, I want to say maybe Sandy Koufax. I think that sounds right. I think that kind of rings a bell a little bit. So that's the thing about baseball, right? Baseball is all about history. It's all about re relieving, keeping those great players alive through, through memories and talking about them. You also are in a dugout that has a whole bunch of future. Well, not a whole bunch, but quite a few uh, future hall of famers. You got Kershaw, mm-hmm. you got El Tio, Albert Pujols. You're around them. You see what these guys do, the work they put in, what makes them really great. And you've also now been at the show, even though with COVID, it's been a little different having to deal with the media, post-game interviews and stuff like that. Do you think when it comes to the Hall of Fame, shouldn't it just be maybe a player's vote? Should we have sports? I mean, shouldn't the people who actually played with these guys, shouldn't they have more say yeah, I think you're exactly right. It should be what your peers think about you, right? Or maybe past Hall of, or current Hall of Famers, people that are already in, they should get a vote, right? I think, I don't want to demean a bunch of sports writers, but I mean, these are a lot of those guys haven't played this game at the highest level. And I think it's kind of hard to take what they say with any value, right? Because they don't know what it's like to go through this grind, to play this game for as long as you can until your body is broken into pieces, right? I mean... I think a lot of guys don't understand what it really takes. And I think it kind of hurts a lot of guys. You know, you you just said something right now that I I think is very important in terms of the lockout. And that is you guys, you don't know how long your career is going to be. You guys don't know how long you can play this game. So I think it is very important that you guys get what you can financially out of this, but you guys already lost a season due to COVID. And now you might have a shortened season because because of this lockout. When you see, when it's all said and done, when you see some of these guys, we had Dale Murphy and he was, he's before your time, but we had him on the show. This guy was a stud in the eighties, but his career cut short because of injuries. But during that short period of time, he was an elite player. So when you see people trying to demean the accomplishments of someone like, let's say, Barry Bonds and someone like Roger Clemens. How, how does that make you feel? You know, it's tough. I mean, I, I understand the whole off the field argument, right? Like, but at the same time, I, I think the Hall of Fame should, for the most part, be based off of what you do on the field, right? I mean, we're trying to preserve the history of the game. And I think by not including guys like Clemens and Bonds, you're kind of just trying to erase a, his, a piece of history, right? And in Bonds' case, is one of the most biggest pieces of history there is, right? Being the home right. run leader. Um, so, you know, it sucks to see that because, like, that's what I'm saying. Like, guys like that are getting hurt, right? And it, it's just kind of, I think it really takes away from the game itself. I mean, when you talk about, when they say character plays a role in, in the Hall of Fame vote, and I, I see what you're saying. It should just be what's on the field. I mean, how serious do players take the character aspect of it? Because as far as we know, you might be playing with a bunch of raging a-holes and we just never hear about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, it's tough. I think, yeah, because I think that should, for the most part, I think the players would know better, obviously, right? I mean, the media, 
you have guys like Bonds who didn't get a, along well with the media, right? So I think that kind of affects him a huge amount, right? But I mean, I feel as a teammate, he was probably a lot better to his teammates, right? I mean, I think the players would have a lot better uh, estimate on what a guy's character would be than uh, the sports writers. Well, you are on the 40-man roster. Congratulations. Going once we actually get things going in spring training, what are you looking to work on? What, uh, I mean, obviously nothing is guaranteed, but like, what are your goals going into this season? Uh, I think the biggest thing for me, um, I, I, one thing I was preached a lot at me at the end of the year was just trying to be able to be available more, right? So be able to throw three days in a row or whatever. Um, so kind of just address that. Um, I, I, last year, I kind of, the volume I was pitching at at the end of the year was something I never experienced in my life. Uh, you know, all throughout the minors, it's, you're throwing once every third or fourth day, right? So you're not really exposed to the back-to-backs and the three days in a row. So I think that kind of, that kind of affected me, right? Cause I wasn't, I never had experience with that. I think I threw back-to-back once or twice in college. Um, and I did it once or twice in AAA before I got called up. But I mean, I think the first 10 days I was in the big leagues, I threw in six games. Right. So I think that volume kind of took a toll on me and I just kind of have to figure out a way um, to just implement something in my routine to kind of help me recover a little bit better. Um, And then another thing I I really want to focus on in spring training is uh, my ability to get righties out a little bit better. I think uh, last year I was a lot more, not so much one dimensional um, and only facing lefties, but I mean, that was kind of my role, right. was to come in when there was two or three lefties coming up in the order um, and I think something that'll really help impress like Doc and Pryor and stuff like that is showing them that I can get righties out at a better rate. So uh, you said when you came up uh, to the show, everybody wanted just stick with your cutter and your slider. I mean, you have your fastball also. Do you think you need another pitch as a reliever or with what you have is good enough? Um, I think for the most part, the cutter and slider are good enough. Um, but I think there's going to come a time where I'm going to have to throw the sinker a little bit more. And I think I probably do that a little bit this year. Um, the sinker was something I started throwing halfway through spring training last year. Um, I was still kind of at the start of spring training. I was still kind of playing around with the four seamer and a two seamer. Um, ultimately I kind of ended up going with the sinker. It was a little bit better pitch, but it still wasn't great at the time. And it's not really like anything it's kind of like it's very average right in the term of things um this offseason i've had a lot of time to play with it um it's getting a lot better a lot later movement um so i think it's definitely something i'll probably use a little bit more this year why is it so difficult to learn a new pitch uh i think well this late in your career i feel like it's like for me i've been trying to work on a change up for six years right and i still can't figure it out um i think a lot of it's kind of just how pitchers throw, right? I mean, certain, like I'm on the side of the ball very easily, so I can make a ball go right very easily. I can't make a ball go left to save my life. Right? That's why I have problems with the change up. That's why my sinker just kind of goes straight down. It doesn't go much arm side. So I think a lot of it just has to do with like how guys throw uh, for the most part. I mean, certain guys will throw like high arm slot guys will throw curve balls really well, fastballs really well, but they'll struggle with like a slider or like a sweeping slider or something like that. So I think just basically how guys throw. So you're just going to start uh, playing blitz ball. Is, is that what it is? And then that, that'll help with your new pitch. There you go. Yeah. I'll just flip the plate left and right. What, uh, in your opinion, aside from all the scattering report bullshit, your opinion, what is your best pitch? It's oh, a tough one. I want to say my slider. Cause it's been my best pitch. I I'd probably go slider. Uh, it's been my best pitch since I was 
12 years old, probably since I started throwing it. So that's um, your go-to, you know? Yeah. I, well, uh, I don't know. 50, 50 cutter slider. It's hard for me because the cutter is a little bit new. I think the slider is a better pitch. I think it's going to get out a lot more, but I kind of have to throw the cutter. So, and so for, so is it, is it fair to assume that, uh, uh, for you to work on getting righties out, you're you're going to more or less not necessarily perfect those pitches, but maybe I don't know what what tweaks are you going to make to obviously don't show us all your cards because if someone listens to this, that's <laughs> no, why. You're good, you're good. <laughs> but I'm just kind of curious because because again, one thing that people don't understand, as Juan alluded to, developing a pitch this late in your career is difficult, and mm-hmm. on top of that, you're you're on the job training. So, you know, you you have to make these adjustments to also continue with that 40-man roster spot. So I'm just kind of curious to hear kind of your take on that. Yeah, so the big thing for me, I think, with getting righties out, uh, it's the location of the cutter, I think, is a big thing. Um, a lot of times last year, my the easiest, like, throw for me with the cutter is glove side and down, right? But that doesn't really play to righties, right? That plays right into their bat path. So I think a big thing for me is elevating, like, probably belt, like, in on the hands with the cutter. I think that'll play a lot better early in the count against righties rather than going glove side and down. Um, and then if I wanted to with two strikes, I could go back foot with a cutter or a slider. And then obviously I think the sinker, the sinker too, throwing that a lot more kind of opens up that other half of the plate, which then I can go back in with a cutter or a slider. No, and that's great to hear. Cause like I said, it, one thing, it, it's one thing to be working on stuff in the minors, but you're going to be, you're working on stuff, you know, at, at a different level at this point. Uh, mm-hmm. as you were last year, facing some of the best. Like, you know, you mentioned Shohei Otani. Shohei Otani mm-hmm. is, is, you know, the guy, he's on GQ right now, for God's sake. So, I mean, it's, you know, everyone knows who Shohei is. But, I mean, it's not like, I mean, you blew away Freddie Freeman in three pitches in game one. And that's not an mm-hmm. easy out either, whether he's lefty or righty and you're righty and you're righty, you know, whatever. Freddie Freeman's mm-hmm. one of the best in the game, especially because those guys adjust. So, so it's, you know, I, I, I just want our listeners to hear because a lot of fans, as you know, they get jaded in the thing. Well, oh, they're good enough to figure it out. It's like, can you do that? So that's, mm-hmm. that's why for me, it's important to, uh, yeah. to emphasize that. Yeah. It's tough. And like, it's like uh, guys like Freeman too. It's like, you'll have to adjust to them. Right. Cause his second at bat against me, what was it? Game three. I think I threw against him. Uh, he knew exactly what I was going to throw him, right? It was cutter and slider away. He sat on it, sat on it, sat on it, fouled a couple pitches off, and then he hit a slider to le- or a cutter to left field on a line drive. So, you know, it's kind of like next time I face him, I'm going to have to go back in with the sinker just to open up that inside part of the plate. So it's kind of just a game of cat and mouse a little bit. Uh, for the most part, he's he's one of the few hitters I saw all year that actually adjusted to what I threw, right, and changed his approach. Most guys kind of stick to their own strengths, right? So No, and you throw a power slider. I mean, it, you know, it's not, you know, that's seven, you know, 78, you know, low eighties, that, that's a power slider. And, you know, to, to when, if, until you're sitting in the box and you see that movement at the end of the, you know, at the end of it, whether it's the right or the left, and you've never seen it before, you have to make that adjustment. But Freddie Freeman's also a freak. Let's just get that out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> that dude's, that dude's they got the smoothest swing in the game and he's a freak. Same with Shohei. Shohei's mm-hmm. a freak too. Uh, last, last one for me. What what's the memorable the most memorable at bat for you the the entire time that you were up in the show last year? It can be from any point. Probably that Freddie Freeman strikeout in the NLCS. Was it, was it just because it was Freddie or that probably one of the best hitters in the game? Probably one of the biggest moments I've pitched in, in my entire life being it in the NLCS. Uh, I think that kind of at bat just kind of sticks out to me the most, especially the way I went around it too. So. All right, Justin, uh, we're going to end the show the way we end all of our shows. But before that, some quick uh, 
some quick hits here. What is the toughest? Look, I I feel you guys deserve as much money as you can when you guys get to the major leagues because of the minor league experience. Everyone we've talked to has told us the nightmare that going uh, living through minor league baseball is. What was the toughest city to live in in your minor league career? Uh, you're talking about like a place we visited or like the actual like hometown of our an home actual city? I mean you, either or if one town where you were just like oh get me out of here like as quickly as possible uh, or I'm not gonna make it if I stay here any longer yeah they definitely be like the pioneer league as a whole so mm-hmm. rookie, uh what was rookie ball when I was there in 2018 that whole league just living conditions are poor like Idaho Falls uh couple places up in montana just the fields are absolute dog shit the living situations are terrible i think that that whole league just needs to well obviously it's not part of (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) you're right it is now it is now they were listening to you just yeah yeah yeah. wait wait you mean to tell me that that you did not you didn't like playing in uh in billings or butte uh, billings is all right um What's it called? Missoula? Missoula oh, Missoula. Maybe? Sorry, Missoula. I, I was thinking of the nicer part yeah. of Montana. Yeah, Missoula's yeah. dog. No, Bill, Billings was nice, but yeah, Missoula was the, that was probably the worst. That and Idaho Falls. Did you guys ever play in Casper? Places. No. Okay, they were gone by the yeah. Casper was rough there. Uh, I didn't I didn't know if there was still a thing when you were there. That that yeah that, that no, please Wyoming, <laughs> Wyoming is is well that's another conversation for another day. Uh, and then what was what was one thing that surprised you about pitching at Dodger Stadium? Uh, probably just the environment. I think it was uh, a little bit different, right? I've never had I, the fans, obviously. I think the first game I was there with the freeway series, I think it was a sellout, right? Like 56,000 or something like that. Just like that whole environment, uh, the vibe there is amazing. Just interacting and, and with the fans and stuff like that. it's interesting you say that, Justin, because Dodger fans get a bad rap, right? Because we show mm-hmm. up in the third inning and leave in the seventh inning because they don't understand that traffic is real out here. Yeah, you got to blame it on the parking lot. <laughs> Look, the parking lot is a nightmare, man. Like it is two an ways hour. in and out. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. But you do, it is palpable then, the, the, the energy you get from fans when you're at Dodger Stadium? Yeah, I mean, more specifically when things are going your way, right? Obviously, mm-hmm. when you're sucking, they're going to get on you. I mean, they have high expectations, as they should. But, yeah, I know. When, when they're behind you, I mean, it's amazing. Well, you just brought something up that made me want to – I'm curious because I don't think you were there for it. But when the fans booed Kenley Jansen, if you were in the bullpen and you heard those boos, what's your reaction there? I'd be like, what the hell is going on? This guy's <laughs> been your closer for 10 years. He's – freaking help to win a world series yeah i don't know it's so crazy you, but i mean they just have high expectations i mean i understand it but at the same time i think they got to be a little real oh okay so can fans be critical or do we just need to know our role and realize hey fat ass there's a reason why you're in the seat <laughs> and i'm here no i mean i they can they have their own opinions right i mean they can be critical of us i mean it kind of comes with the job right I mean, that's the whole that's what our job revolves around, right? We're going to get criticism from media and fans and stuff like that. I mean, everybody's a professional. They can handle it. All right. So we're going to end the show the way we all end all of our shows. We are taqueros here on, on the show, Justin. We love our tacos. Now that you've been in LA for a minute, we need to know what is your favorite taco and what place do you go in the city to go get that taco? Oh, my favorite. I love shrimp tacos. 
I okay. don't have, I didn't have a spot in LA. Is there I a spot? Is there another spot that you go to to get the shrimp taco and in another city? Uh, back home, there's a place like 10 minutes away called Mi Ranchito. Great shrimp tacos. And that's in, in Petaluma? Uh, Katati. It's like 15 okay. minutes away. Look, I look. I'm with you. The best tacos that I ever had in the in the last few years was a place in in Fruitvale called El Gruyense, and their tacos were. I was like, I was surprised. I was like, the Bay Area comes to town, and I know that our producer Roger is going to be very upset that I'm sitting Uh-oh. here, you know, giving the Bay Area tacos some some cred. But I can tell you, go to Fruitvale and go to El Gruyense. And you're going to get to, and they have squirt there. So I was in Westwood and they didn't know what squirt was. So that's why I have Westwood nausea and I just stay on the East side of LA. Well, on that note, Justin Brill, we, uh, we appreciate you joining us. Follow the man on social media at jbrill 24 on Twitter at Justin, it's Justin Brill on Instagram, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. At Justin Brill, the pride of Petaluma. We'll have you back on to discuss why Tom Brady is not the goat, and and we can you know we can get violent at that point because I mean you know we we I feel like he- confrontation is healthy sometimes and sometimes oh, yeah. you know confrontation about why Tom Brady is not the goat is necessary. That's all right. We'll throw some jabs. I'll yeah, I'm cool with that. Cool he with says that. that while he wears his Aaron Rodgers jersey, Justin. So, <laughs> just so you yeah. have some. When, it, when, it, when he said he was a Packers fan, I kind of figured out why he doesn't think Brady's the goat. So. Well, no, and truthfully, it's not even uh, an Aaron Rodgers thing. I mean, listen, the Packers have been spoiled for 30-something years, and they've only gotten two Super Bowls, so, so don't even get me started on that. But it's we'll talk about it in a, in a civil manner where, where hands are not thrown, but uh, and obviously balls will be fully flated, so we don't even have to go there. And then we can <laughs> – if, if everyone could just see Justin's face, he wants to sock me through the computer. And you know what? It's cool. Um, Sorry. But uh, the last time Justin's on the show. <laughs> but uh, but on that note, thank you again for making the time. We appreciate your candor and uh, and for giving us a little bit of insight with what's going on uh, with the lockout and and also getting to know you because obviously you're it looks like you you might be a mainstay here in Los Angeles. Yep, I appreciate you guys having me. You know, it was a blast. Yeah, thanks again. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review to the Bleed Lows Podcast. The Bleed Lows Podcast is a Dodgers Beat production. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.